Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. Evolution is more than a theory. It is a fundamental scientific principle. You know, there's a scientific term for that. It's called baloney. We are so stupid that we think that just because telephones and computers and cars are intelligently designed, that means we are too. Well, we're not. I don't trust that Richard Dawkins. In the beginning, God created heaven and the earth. It's the only logical explanation, unless you don't want to believe in science and logic. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Who wants to learn from a dead guy? I do, I do. This is Wretched Radio. Uh, Let's go back in time again, shall we? To hear about a subject that many of us are a little bit allergic to, and that is the love of God. You may recall, if you listened yesterday, which is highly unlikely because we haven't found anybody who has listened two days in a row, we shared a sermon from Octavius Winslow on the love of God, and perhaps you thought, oh, he must have been the Joel Osteen of his day. Nothing just goopy, gloppity, love of God business. No, no, he was not. In the very same sermon, he does an altar call. Without the altar, part of it. He proclaims the gospel, and I thought it would be worth our time to hear an 1870 proclamation of the gospel commanding people right where they are this second to repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. And what you're going to hear is this guy was not a squish bomb, even though he was talking about the love of God quite effusively. It was a clarion call to repent, to not be a fool and delay and wait until your deathbed because you just don't know when that day is going to come. And this might be helpful for you if you teach Sunday school, you preach, or you want your kids to get saved. There's a bit of a trend these days, not just in Big Eva, but also in our conservative circles, where the gospel can frequently bit a bit, bit of a tack on at the end. Often you'll hear it as, we've just studied now about Jonah, and if you're here today and you don't want to end up in the belly of a whale, I'd ask you to... Put your trust in Jesus Christ. It's just, we just kind of stack it onto the end because we realize, ooh, we got to get it in some place. And it conveniently fits at the end because it's almost like a nota bene to the entire sermon. But that is not what this guy did. This, what you're about to hear was in the middle of his sermon on the love of God. And it goes on for pages. Here are some, just some of the highlights. Sinner. Now, he's not talking about the tennis player from Italy. He's talking about anybody sitting there, any human being, sinner. Remember, this is the guy who is talking about love. Feel the balance even inside of a sermon on love. Sinner, thus has the God of love been dealing with you. Long has he dealt with you in the way of mercy and forbearance. Judgment has lingered. There has been the hiding of his power. His mercy has restrained his wrath. (gasps) He talked about wrath. And but for this, hell must have been your present abode. And still you sin. Still you fight against God. Still you despise his son, reject his grace, scorn his salvation, and rush heedlessly, madly upon thick bosses of his buckler. You just... You're running into the wood chipper is basically what he's saying, whether you are in Fargo or not. Did you hear the language there? That's fiery stuff. But remember, it's in the context of God's love. And this is the balance you and I need to find. We don't need to abandon holiness, righteousness, judgment, just to focus exclusively entirely on love. But we we don't want to do it the other way either, do we? We shouldn't be allergic to talking about the love of God. This was an ongoing altar call. There is a limit to divine forbearance and infinite mercy. When God, so to speak, has exhausted all means of kindness and love, justice steps in and executes his righteous vengeance and wrath. Now, we are a paragraph and a fifth into this altar call, this gospel proclamation. Most gospel proclamations are not this long. 
what what you just heard there. So if you're here today and you you just you know you know things aren't right with God, you need to know He died on the cross, rose from the grave. He'll forgive your sins. So do business with God. Amen. Not this guy. This went on and on and on. Mercy gives place to judgment. And the sinner is righteously and eternally condemned. What do you say then, sinner, to this love? Has it interested, instructed, won you? Presume not upon its patience and continuance. Throw down the weapons of your rebellion and submit to the government of God. Repent and believe. Cast yourself in contrition at his feet and embrace in faith the scepter of his grace extended in the person and work of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. This reminds me of another plead from a sermon from, oh, he's probably 19th century guy. Maybe, yeah, 19th century guy. He was warning people, just don't go to war. Don't go to battle with God. Lay down. He offers terms of peace right now. Lay down your arms. He desires to manifest his goodness in saving you. Not so much his holiness and righteousness in condemning you. He wants to magnify his attributes of mercy, grace, and loving kindness. Don't be foolish. And that went on for paragraphs also. I wonder if we couldn't learn something from these dead guys when it comes to just plain preaching the gospel. Now, I realize it gets hard to do this. It can be difficult, especially when every week it's the same audience, same congregation. How do you make it fresh? You don't. You don't have to. Just preach it. Don't drive by it. Linger here. That scepter will not always be outstretched. Neither will it always be the scepter of grace. God is a God of justice as well as of love. A God that takes vengeance as well as a God that shows mercy. Listen to his awful words. When I sharpen my flashing sword and begin to carry out justice, I will bring vengeance on my enemies and repay those who hate me. Oh, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is a consuming fire. Do not make light of eternal punishment. Do not think it a small thing to fall under the vengeance of a holy, just, and gracious God. Mercy is fearful when it turns to wrath. Love is consuming when it turns to anger. There is no wrath like the wrath of the Lamb. With hell flashing in your face. With the wrath to come, wrath forever and ever to come, preparing for its dread and endless outpouring with the certain prospect before you of the undying worm of conscience and the unquenchable flame of bodily and soul suffering. Why, oh, why will you die? The pleading of these guys. So if you're sitting here today and you'd like to come forward and talk, Whoa, these guys were, please come to your senses. Is sin so sweet, the world so attractive, the creature so satisfying, that for it you are willing to imperil your everlasting happiness, to barter your soul? Conceive, oh, conceive if possible, what it is to dwell in everlasting burning, to lie down in eternal fire. Spirit of the living God, awaken the sleeping sinner, quicken the dead soul. Anybody else thinking of Paul Washer right now? Do you remember the sermon that launched him into the stratosphere of notoriety? The shocking youth message? Preaching hard for 40 minutes and then ultimately doing the exact same thing you just heard Winslow do. Oh, God, blow on this place. Move on this place. Sounds a lot like Washer. And Winslow, doesn't it? Cause men everywhere to realize in some degree what a fearful, what an appalling, indescribable thing it is to be lost forever. And then he sweetens it a little bit. A little. Oh, what a mercy that you are not already in hell and that there is a door open to you into heaven. That door is Christ. Cease striving to enter heaven by the door of your good works. 
and religious duties by the merits and intercessions of men, of saints, or angels. We know what group he was poking at there. There is but one door into heaven, faith in the Savior, who died for sinners on the cross, and whose blood and righteousness supply all the merit God requires or man can bring. Jesus came to save sinners, saves them now, saves them to the uttermost, saves them freely and forever. Why not you? I would ask that same question. If you have never humbled yourself before the mighty hand of God, you will. You will be humbled. There's an eternal difference. You wait, you delay, you press upon his forbearance, and it runs out, if you will. He will drop you to your knees with a rod of iron. That very same God offers you terms of peace right now. He extends a loving scepter. Grab it. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your self-righteousness. Abase yourself before God. Put your trust in his son and he will exalt you in due time. Why would you delay? This is Wretched Radio. I would say the Tomorrow Clubs is a wonderful ministry. Kids are getting saved like crazy, not just in Eastern Europe, but also in Africa. And it's so efficient. I was just with Paul and Cindy Marty, and I asked, and I said, in, in American currency, how much does it cost to have a kid come to a Tomorrow Club four times a month? So every single week, what, what's the, what does it take to make that happen? Ready? A buck, one dollar. That's it. The kid comes, they get treats. They get materials that they learn the Bible. They memorize a buck because it's it's all volunteer driven. All those dear ones, they're volunteers. It's an amazing ministry. And if you have a heart for the lost in Eastern Europe, Africa, and you love supporting ministries that are super efficient and biblically sound, I would point you in the direction of tomorrowclub.org slash wretched, tomorrowclub.org slash wretched, and ask how many children might I be able to support per month? All right, well, buckle up, get ready. Road Trip to Truth Season 4 is back. Host John Fabar is also back this year. But what's different this year is he has a traveling companion. Our buddy Jake Ream is joining him on the Road Trip to Truth for Season 4. And this is not going to be your typical grandma's Bible study. No, 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 no. If any of our other seasons are any indication, you know exactly what you're in store for. Hard-hitting questions, controversial topics, and a heaping dose of biblical truth. Sin, death, atheism, racism, critical race theory, you name it, they're going to cover it this season, and they're not going to pull any punches while they're doing it. Get ready, because they're going to tackle the toughest issues facing Christians today from a solid biblical perspective. Road Trip to Truth Season 4, available for purchase now at wretched.org slash four. That's wretched.org slash F-O-U-R. I believe in a culture of life. One of the most impactful moments of my life was when I heard the heartbeat of my oldest daughter uh, in my wife's womb and then saw the sonograms of all three of my kids. The sonogram or the, the pictures that are taken of babies, still a profoundly helpful tool, which encourages me to encourage you to consider supporting Preborn Ministries. Preborn Ministries and their network clinics, they are giving away free ultrasounds to women, but they do cost something. It's $28 an ultrasound. And just as you heard Governor DeSantis say, his view of life was profoundly changed when he saw the baby in the womb when you see the form and the shape and the fingers and the heartbeat would you please consider supporting preborn it's a great ministry of life it has a high anthropology shares the gospel with women and with the dads preborn.org slash wretched preborn.org slash wretched books of the bible deuteronomy means second law As the Israelites prepared to enter the Promised Land after wandering 40 years, God reminds them of how He rescued them from Egypt, what He commands in His law, and the blessings and curses that come with keeping or breaking His law. 
God is faithful to provide the inheritance He has promised to His children. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. This wouldn't work in a home. It can't work in a country. This is Wretched Radio. Multiculturalist globalism. There shouldn't be boundaries. There shouldn't be borders. There shouldn't be cultural distinctives. There shouldn't be standards. There shouldn't be norms. There shouldn't be a common language, common interests, common values. We should be multi we should just be whatever we want, and even if you live in one particular zip code, you can bring the ideals and values and customs and foods, whatever you want, from another zip code, import them in, and we're just going to get along. It doesn't work in a house. Go ahead. Try it. I always find this to be a most helpful exercise. Shrink down an issue to something smaller, neighborhood or home. For instance... We have a tendency to read about naughty children in the Old Testament and go, whoa, that's severe. We have a tendency to think about pagan religions and God's desire to see it eradicated from his holy set-apart people. And we go, whoa, well, there was a holy reason for it. There was a, a beneficial reason for human flourishing in those commands, but it was also because a smaller unit cannot absorb those challenges, those adversities. If you're in a small village and you've got yourself a kid who is a tyrant, this kid is absolutely, he's the Tasmanian devil of your town of 80 people. You can't absorb that. We can in the States because we're so big, so naughty children, whatever. Foreign religions, whatever. Bad ideology. We'll just, we can absorb it because we're so big. But when you shrink it down, you can't absorb it. And multiculturalism can't be absorbed. Furthermore, there is a biblical reason why we need to reject it. Because I get it. It is a little tricky to find that balance of other cultures have good things to offer. And, and, and we'd be silly to not identify those and tap into those. But that's different than saying that we shouldn't have a defined culture, that we shouldn't have certain guardrails that keep us on the tracks together. If, if you are going to be multi-culti in your home, I guess it's multi-culti in your home, how would that work out? Mom cooks dinner. No, I'm going to cook it up in my room on a hot plate. Because I like my form of food better. Okay, it's not the end of the world, but but then when you move into things like, how's about just the patterns of a home? When people go to bed, when they wake up, when they play loud music, when they don't. What about morals and values? What about going to church on Sunday? What about the God to whom we bow and pray? You can't sustain that in a smaller context, and you can't sustain it in a country. From the American mind, the paradox of multiculturalist globalism. Late-stage liberalism, philosophically speaking, is an incoherent mess. It boosters claim to be defenders of women, but they allow men to infiltrate women's spaces and women's sports. In other words, it's paradox after contradiction. Doesn't make any sense. I did read about this was this was oh this was interesting in the New York Times. They did an expose on a woman who did things to her body to try to appear like a man. And she too was a swimmer. And she did well in the women's division, but she just had to be with her gender. <clears throat> so she thought. So she went on the men's team. And she doesn't win. We, we all knew that that would happen, but I think this is worthy of, of noting. This is the second time that I've read in the New York Times that they want to take a moral issue and personalize it. This, this is argument by anecdote. This is one of the lamest debate tactics there is. And you'll, you'll, you'll recognize it, articles, if you ever go to debates. Let me tell you the story about Janie Sue, which... Could be somebody's name in the South anyway. Let me tell you about Janie Sue. She grew up and then you hear an anecdote. Uh-huh, do you want that to happen? Therefore, my position is right. It's argument by anecdote. And there was an abortion article about a week ago 
where it was a long article stating we've got to get away from the science. We've got to get away from the politics. We've got to get away from the morality and humanize the subject. In other words, hey, we got to let people do what makes them happy. And the same statement was uttered or typed in this New York Times article about this woman swimmer in the men's division. We've got to humanize it. Hey, they're not happy unless a surgeon's scalpel takes off body parts. We got to let them do it. Be ready to see that argument more and more. Back to our article on multiculturalism. They claim race is a social construct, something that has no scientific basis in nature or biology. But the critical race theory doubles down on the idea that racial identity is the single most important feature of one's personhood. Which is it? It's incoherent. Liberals insist upon the importance of bodily autonomy for personal freedom's sake arguing that any restriction of abortion is an assault on human dignity. But they also gave strong support for mandatory masking and forced vaccinations. You remember saying, hey, wait a second, my body, (laughs) I can do it. If you were opposed to masks, if you were opposed to vaccinations, you tried to use their line of thinking. My body, my choice didn't work. Why? Because liberalism is incoherent. These contradictions emanate. From one of the great political paradoxes of our age, the bizarre partnership between globalists and multiculturalists. So we need to get into some definitions here because this is the way our world is currently working. Multiculturalism is a new ideology. Liberals used to recognize that cultural diversity within a society, it was inevitable. You're going to get strangers, foreigners, sojourners. But they understood too much of it was bad for social cohesion. In other words, you homogenized out of many one. Now it's out of many, many. And we're all going to figure out a way to get along. It doesn't it just it just doesn't work. That's multiculturalism. The American tradition insists upon the toleration of difference in a free society. Amen. But multiculturalism is a perversion of that. Today's multiculturalists, it's not sufficient to tolerate individual cultural difference. They must be affirmed and celebrated. They view difference as an inherent political good. E pluribus pluribus. (laughs) Out of many, many, our diversity is our strength. You hear that, don't you? And historically, liberals would say, no, our strength is that even though we're diverse, we become one. Because that's what helps a society function. Our diversity is our strength, they argue. We've got to maximize the number of different cultures in our society. Now, this is not by any means to suggest being racist or feeling ethnically superior. It's merely recognizing that historically, by God's design, this goes back to Tower of Babel business. There's got to be boundaries. There's got to be lines. And it, it's our culture, by the way, that keeps us separate And that's a good thing, because if we are not separated by language and cultural distinctions, guess what we're going to do? We're going to build a tower to Babel to try to get to heaven, the Babylonian tower, to try to show, see, we can do anything we put our minds to. Globalism seeks to change the citizens of sovereign nations into cosmopolitans or citizens of the world. And that globalism actually opposes nationalism. Globalism sees allegiances as a narrow-minded provincialism. Only when you shed your higher esteem for your own nation can the full premise, a promise rather, of liberalism be actualized. Globalists harbor a disdain for borders, whether physical, cultural, economic, whatever. Globalists see a grave injustice in the inability of non-citizens to influence the nation's decision-making on matters that would impact their lives. You, you feel the difference? They're short-term allies but they're natural enemies. Multiculturalism reveres particularity. It celebrates unique peoples and cultures. Globalism says, wipe them out. And yet, you see them partnering together. Why? Well, because they have an agenda. And the 
And we need to remember the formula that darkness never fights against darkness. Now, it, it, that explains the uh, incoherent mess that liberalism is, because it really isn't about these issues per se. It's really about who defines what is right and wrong. Who will write the rules? Who gets to decide how now we live? And the new liberals would say, we'll make that decision for you. And it manifests itself in an utter incoherent mess. Why don't the feminists ever talk about the treatment of Islamic women? Well, because they're on the same team. Darkness doesn't fight against darkness. You're only seeing a little bit of a, even though LGB, LGB is diametrically opposed to the T edition. Well, for the most part, they still get along. Why? Because darkness partners with darkness. How do you break this down? You can try to logic and reason. I got to tell you something. If, if you see what is going on in our culture and you want to change, um, it demands something supernatural, doesn't it? This is Wretched Radio. Books of the Bible. Esther is the story of a Jewish woman who becomes Queen of Persia. After a plot to destroy the Jews is uncovered, Esther risks her life to save her people. She appeals to the king who kills the conspirators and allows the Jews to defend themselves. When you face persecution, remember God is able to save his people through all kinds of circumstances. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. We don't have to... But we're going to. This is Wretched Radio, and no doubt. You've heard the accusation when you've evangelized. What about the Crusades? Ha, 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 ha. As if the behavior of some of Jesus' supposed followers impugns Jesus himself. Furthermore, despite the fact that those are Roman Catholic Crusades, which I have no need to defend. That, that's one way, by the way, of batting away the accusation that Christianity isn't true because look at all of the atrocities that Christians have committed. Number one, that was the Roman Catholic Church. Number two, even when Christians behave poorly, don't judge Jesus based on the atrocious behavior of some of his followers, even if it's in name only. However, if you'd like to take the time I hold in my never-before nicotine-stained fingers, the real history of the Crusades and the accusations that atheist agnostics make against Christianity because of the Crusades can easily be batted away. This is from Intercollegiate Review, Paul F. Crawford. This is the real history, because even in textbooks, they are... It's to slander Christ. They don't discriminate between Catholicism and Protestantism. It doesn't matter. They did something bad, we think, so therefore, la ha 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 against Christianity. One otherwise reliable Western civilization textbook claims the Crusades fused three characteristic medieval impulses, piety, pugnacity, and greed. All three were essential, they claim. The film Kingdom of Heaven that was in 2005 depicts crusaders as boorish bigots, the best of whom were torn between remorse for their excesses and lust to continue them. Historical supplements for role-playing games. Unsupposedly reliable sources contain statements such as, The soldiers of the First Crusade appeared basically without warning, storming into the Holy Land with the avowed task of slaughtering unbelievers. Oh, therefore, I guess I don't have to believe in Jesus. The Crusades were an, a form of early imperialism. Another critique or accusation, confrontation with Islam gave birth to a period of religious fanaticism that spawned the terrible Inquisition and the religious wars that ravaged Europe during the Elizabethan era. Oh, yeah, there were a lot of wars going on defending themselves from the religion of peace. The most famous semi-popular historian of the Crusades, Sir Stephen Runciman, 
And it is three volumes of prose with the judgment that the Crusades were, quote, nothing more than a long act of intolerance in the name of God, which is the sin against the Holy Ghost. Now, please remember, the popes that were involved in the Crusades, uh, Pope Urban II, I believe, is the fellow who kicked it off in 1093-ish. This was the season of popes that was... If you'd like to learn about some of their atrocities, some of their horrific unchristian behavior, just go to the YouTube machine, type in wretched and Catholic, and you'll see a number of treatments of the history of the papacy, the bloody history of the Roman Catholic Church. Those are the accusations. Myth number one, the Crusades represented an unprovoked attack by Western Christians on the Islamic world. Is that true? The long answer is no. No, it's not. It's not even close. A.D. 632, Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, North Africa, Spain, France, Italy, and the islands of Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica were all Christian territories. Wow, isn't that fascinating to consider? Places like Turkey, they were Christian for centuries. What changed? Well, a fellow in the 7th century who claimed to have some visions and messages from Allah propagated the religion by the sword. Christianity was the official and overwhelmingly majority religion. Outside those boundaries were other large Christian communities, not necessarily Orthodox or Catholic, but still Christian in some form. Most of the population of Persia was Nestorian, not good, but certainly there were Christian communities in Arabia. Now, they may have been Catholic-ish because the Catholic Church, if you've ever wondered, when did it really start? I think we have a video on that too. But when did it start? Different historians will argue. I always think 5th century, 5th, 6th century, right in that neighborhood when the Bishop of Rome started to amass for himself more and more power. And so I, I tend to think of the like the 5th century or the 500s until the the Roman Catholic Church of Martin Luther Reformation time. That's really when the Roman Catholic Church started to gain momentum, power, and theology became increasingly unbiblical. By AD 732, Christians had lost Egypt, Palestine, Syria, North Africa, Spain, most of Asia Minor, and southern France. Italy and the islands were under threat. The islands would come under Islamic rule in the next century. The Christian communities of Arabia destroyed shortly after 633. Jews and Christians were expelled from the peninsula. Those in Persia were under severe pressure. Two-thirds of the formerly Roman Christian world was now ruled by Muslims. So to say that the Roman Catholic Church initiated these wars? Uh, no. Territories where they had a footprint were, were being taken over by Islamic hordes. That's history. Every one of the regions was taken within the space of 100 years. From Christian control, it was taken by violence. Military campaigns deliberately designed to expand Islamic territory at the expense of Islam's neighbors. Now, Charlemagne... Or, if you're not much of a historian, Charlemagne blocked the advance in Western Europe in about 800. But Islamic forces, they just shifted their focus and they went island hopping across North Africa toward Italy and the French coast, attacking the Italian mainland, 837. The bellicose people of this era... It wasn't the Roman Catholic Church. And again, I have no need to defend the Roman Catholic Church, but this is just history. There was an aggressor, and, and, and it, it, it wasn't the Roman Catholic Church. It was Islam. A confused struggle for control of southern and central Italy continued for the rest of the 9th century and into the 10th. Between 850 and 950, Benedictine monks were driven out of ancient monasteries, papal states were overrun, Muslim pirate bases were established along the coast of northern Italy, southern France, from which attacks on the deep island were launched. 
desperate to protect victimized Christians. Popes became involved, shouldn't have, but they did, became involved in the 10th and early 11th centuries in directing the defense of the territory around them. They were trying to save people's lives initially. Now it grew. But the moral of the story is when people make the accusation, the Crusades were unprovoked attacked by Western Christians on the Islamic world. Well, that's just, that's just really bad history. I mean, if somebody says that to you, just remember, most people don't study things like this. They just see a YouTube video and off they go. A university professor throws out a line and that's the, the Crusades. You know, they killed all the Muslims. And they just did it for money, another myth. And they go with it. They don't know. But anybody who's an historian would say, yeah, you're right. It wasn't an unprovoked assault. It was a response. The struggle continued unabated into the 11th century. In 1009, a Muslim ruler destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and mounted major persecutions of Christians and Jews. Despite the Byzantines sent appeals for help westward, they didn't get an answer. The Pope finally responded late in the game. The Byzantines persisted in their appeals and finally 1095, okay, 1092, 93, I've heard all of them, by the way. Pope Urban II, ha, realized Gregory the VII's desire and what turned into the first crusade. So far from being unprovoked, they represent the first great Western Christian counterattack against Islamic attacks, which had been going on for about five centuries. History is important. And again, I'm not saying that what they did was right at all. I don't think the church should be an actual military. I get it. Uh, there's, the, there's the military church spiritually, but not getting on horses with swords to take back territory. To put the question in perspective, one need only consider how many times Christian forces have attacked either Mecca or Medina. The answer, of course, is never. That was myth number one. Three to go as we take a trip down memory lane and the Crusades next on Wretched Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Wretched Radio today. And recently I was reflecting on a verse from 1 Corinthians 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. And as I was doing that, it, it drew me back to a significant moment in my life. And I wanted to point you back to the past as well. Do you remember the first time you donated to us here at Wretched? You stood firm in your faith then, and that was an impactful gesture, and we hope to see it again. See, here at Wretched, we operate on tight lines, making the most of every cent. Every dollar is divided thoughtfully, 83% going directly to fuel this ministry. And the good news is we're held to high standards by the ECFA. There's no room for financial extravagance or any type of misuse around here. Every donation is appreciated, respected, and used wisely. You've got questions, and we have answers at wretched.org slash donate. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. So you aren't convinced of the importance of training godly men to rightly divide the word of truth in churches internationally? Well, then we'll let Paul Washer convince you. You have to support men who are elder qualified proclaimers of the word. When we support a man coming out of TMAI, we know not only that he is properly trained, but we know that he will still be supervised. Would you please join TMAI, the Master's Academy International, in advancing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through expository preaching in local churches around the globe. It's a magnificent ministry and it's so important. Please consider partnering with TMAI at wretched.org slash pastor, wretched.org slash pastor. Thank you for supporting indigenous pastors around the world. Have you 
ever felt like you're on an emotional roller coaster? It's okay to admit it because we've all been there and some of us are there now. Well, saddle up, buckle up, strap up, whatever it is you prefer. Just tune in to Transform with Dr. Greg Gifford. It's the podcast you quite possibly have been waiting for because it's the place where anxiety, loneliness, depression, and fear come face to face with the Bible. And don't expect Dr. Gifford to just read scripture. No, he wrestles with it and applies it to challenges we all face. Trust me, this podcast, it's a game changer. And it must be for me to say game changer because I loathe that phrase. But that's exactly what Transformed with Dr. Greg Gifford is. It'll help you and it will empower you to help others too. You'll be throwing out biblical wisdom like you're in Solomon's Court. New episodes, they drop every Saturday morning at transform.org slash podcast or wherever you usually listen to podcasts. Trust me, you'll be glad you listened. Titles of Christ In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who He is and what He has done. Jesus is called the Friend of Sinners. While we were dead in our sins and condemned as enemies, Jesus bore our sins in Himself so we could be reconciled to the Father. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Wow. This is Wretched Radio Onward! Christian soldiers. Oh, this isn't good at all, actually. <laughs> the video of Onward Christian soldiers. They're soldiers. <laughs> They're showing dudes from the Crusades. Um, no. The church is not a military division. We battle spiritually, not with swords. We are not the ones to wield that device. That belongs to the government. We're in a spiritual battle. And yet there was a time when Christians, specifically the Roman Catholic Church, decided gear up men. We're going to an actual, physical, military-style war. It's the Crusades, and it is regularly used against Christ. It makes no sense. It, 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 it's, it, it would be like, uh, uh, um, okay, uh, Jimmy? Yes. Th- thanks for joining us. Jimmy, <laughs> yes. have you ever um, stubbed your toe oh, yeah. and been, well, perhaps a little bit more angry than you should be. <laughs> yes. See, that's why I don't believe in your wife. You don't believe in my wife? That's, I mean, with your behavior, I don't believe your wife exists. <laughs> that's how ridiculous it is. <laughs> hey, look at the Crusades. Therefore, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Let's tackle the myths. Number one, that the Crusades were unprovoked. no. No, they weren't. Myth number two, Western Christians went on crusades because they were greedy plunderers and they just wanted to get rich. Few crusades had sufficient cash. This, by the way, is taken from an article that appeared in the Intercollegiate Review, a 2011 edition. So pithy. Well done, sir. Few crusades had sufficient cash both to pay their obligations at home and to support themselves decently on a crusade. Did plundering happen? Yes. Is that why they went? No, they had to pay their own fare. These were not wealthy people. They really believed they were going to rescue Jerusalem. They were going to rescue Christians who were taking a shellacking from the religion of peace. From the very beginning, financial considerations played a major role in crusade planning. The early crusaders sold off. So many of their possessions to finance their expeditions that they caused widespread inflation. The financial demands of crusading caused profound economic and monetary changes in Western Europe. So this was a mover of the market and of what wealth accumulation looked like. We just need to know these people didn't sell everything to go make a fortune. They financed their own journey Because they believed in it. It was wrong, but they believed in it. 
One of the chief reasons for the foundering of the Fourth Crusade, it ran out of money before it had gotten properly started. Louis IX's Seventh Crusade in the mid-13th century cost more than six times the annual revenue of the crown. The popes, what did they do? Well, you gotta raise some more money. Instituting the first income tax in the early 13th century. Wait, we can... There was always taxes. These must have just been crusade taxes that they're talking about. Making a series of adjustments in the way that indulgences... Oh, which are alive and well, by the way. How they were handled. That led to the abuses condemned by... Martin Luther, in short, very few people became rich by crusading. Their numbers were puny compared to those who were bankrupted. Most medieval people were well aware of this and did not consider crusading a way to improve their financial situations. Myth number three. Crusades were a cynical lot who didn't really believe their own religious propaganda. Rather, they had ulterior, or ulterior materialistic motives. Is that true? From our article, one thing, the, uh, cause, 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 the people who died rates on the Crusades were usually really high, and many, if not most, Crusaders left expecting not to return. They believed in the cause. At least one military historian has estimated the casualty rate for the First Crusades at an appalling 75%. Now, the Crusades went on for centuries. Everybody knew the stats because their fathers and brothers didn't return. They knew this was risky business without an upside. Why did they go? They, they really believed it. And they were lied to and told that they could earn eternity by going to save the lives of other Christians and potentially offer their own, which is a lie. But they believed it. Crusaders were not drafted. It was voluntary. Participants had to be persuaded to go. And the primary means of persuasion was the crusade sermon. Warnings. That Crusading brought deprivation, suffering, and often death. That this was the reality of crusading was well known everywhere, but they still went. Why? Because they believed it. Crusade preachers had to persuade their listeners to commit themselves to enterprises that would disrupt their lives, impoverish, and even kill or maim them, and inconvenience their families. Putting a huge burden on their families, but they went anyway. Why? They thought it was a penance for sin. Once again, the Roman Catholic system, it's not Jesus alone. It just isn't. There, there's, there's. I know that recently, probably since Vatican II, but even since the Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement gained some sort of momentum, although it's kind of sputtered out, that they use language that makes it sound like it's Jesus alone, but there's always a comma but. You've also got to, but it's Jesus alone, and you've got to, well, th then it's not Jesus alone. Conclusion for myth number three, as difficult as it may be for modern people to believe, the evidence strongly suggests most crusaders were motivated by a desire to please God, expiate their sins, and put their lives at the service of their neighbors. Myth number four, the crusades taught Muslims to hate and attack Christians. Well. They'd already been attacking Christians for 450 years, <laughs> so it's kind of hard to imagine it was the Crusades that set them off. Do not be deceived. The Crusades, while not something that we endorse and affirm because the church militant does not put on Crusader regalia or bear arms against another nation unless you go into the military because that is God's ordained institution for military, bearing the sword, protecting people, doing good, but not the church. The church is about the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And when you look at the Crusades, how successful were they? Well, maybe half successful. I'm just generalizing. But Italy, of course, remained Roman Catholic. France, at least used to sort of be kind of a little bit Roman Catholic. Spain, was it Charles Martel? It was Charles, yeah, Charles Martel, I believe, who drove the Islamic hordes back. Spain was Roman Catholic, but the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Turkey, all formerly Christian. But those are some of the places that you read about Paul's missionary journeys in the first century. And I grant you, Charlemagne, he had something to do with this, that he made Christianity the religion of the empire. And I suspect that there were threatenings then, and that was not correct either. But I don't think it's fair to say that Christianity spread in whatever form it was by means of the sword. But Islam, on the contrary, that is precisely how they expanded. Furthermore, Islam expands. They're doing, they're doing something that apparently we in the West don't think is a good idea, having lots of babies. They, they birth a lot of Muslims. They are way ahead of us in the birth rate. Don't be deceived. Christianity should be the religion of peace. The Crusades were not. Islam was not. And the next time somebody brings this up to you, just take them down a little trip through memory lane, remind them of these things, and might I suggest just get off of it about as fast as you can. And enough with the history. We need that. This is a part of our apologetics arrows that we can bring out of our quiver and aim as we need to. But defending the Crusades, it won't get anybody saved. Not once did somebody go, wait a second, I thought the Crusades were the Catholics and they were making money and stuff. Never mind, where do I sign up to follow Jesus? Doesn't happen. So use it, get off of it, get back to the realm of the conscience to convict them of sin and lead them to understand their need for the Savior who died that we might have peace. And until tomorrow, go serve your king.